0: I'm Amanda Vanstone, you're on RN. This is Counterpoint. Globalisation and robotics combine to produce globotics. First, people were moved off the land into industrial jobs, then into services, and now robots are after them. But there's some good news. Robots aren't great at people skills, so the humanities may be set for a big expansion. And speaking of robots, one named Bandicoot may be set to take over the sewers of India, ending the practice of sending humans down to do this dirty, humiliating, and life-threatening work by hand. And we're back into space. What should we be doing? Is there a bright future? But first, to cities, or otherwise described as urban blobs. Do we really understand their impact on us as humans and on society? Let's take a look.
1: Fresh laid concrete, melodies blow
0: if you were asked the question, what's one of the things that has most changed the shape of humanity? What would you say? Maybe the discovery of vaccines. I don't know, maybe nuclear weapons. How about cities, urbanisation? It's had a dramatic change. In the last 10 years somewhere, we found that more than half of the world's population lived in cities. That's a big change. If you want to understand just how big this movement is, consider that apparently every week since then, another 3 million country dwellers move into urban areas. That's a big change and it's affecting how we live and who we are and our politics, everything, everything. So we're going to talk about it. We're going to talk about it with Michael Gerbel. He's Professor of International History at the Graduate Institute in Geneva. Michael Goebel, welcome to Counterpoint.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: Cities, you know, you drive around them, you're on the bus in them or on the train. You don't think of them as things that affect us. I mean, they are not static. I know that they grow, but they're inert in the sense that they're not moving like people, and yet they affect us so
1: dramatically.
2: Yes, I agree. I suppose many of the people who listen to the show in Australia, but also in Europe, will be listening to this show while in a city, possibly while driving around. And they do this very naturally every day, so without thinking too much about when exactly and for what purpose this or that building or area of the city was built and what this means for their daily lives. And yes, cities are mostly built in stone today and mostly don't move. Historically, there were moving cities, of course. This doesn't happen so much today, but even though they're petrified in a literal sense and of stone and don't move, of course, cities do change dramatically, although oftentimes for us in rather imperceptible ways. And I think, as you said in your opening statement, since they are so crucial for shaping our everyday lives, even for people who live in the countryside in in different ways, it's well worth thinking about them.
0: Now, when we were more agrarian-based, more spread out, do you think that's who we were as mankind, a humanity that dealt with each other on a daily basis, that knew each other, that felt a commitment to each other, that interacted with each other daily and that worked hard to produce our living. And that that difference remains between people who live in urban areas and people who live in rural areas, because the urban people go to work and they don't necessarily talk to many people, they interact with different people on a very cursory basis, possibly. Do you think that difference is really important?
2: It's hard to say. and The question probably has to be broken up into smaller parts. I think the difference continues on a variety of levels and is not so important on other levels. Now, first of all, mm. historically, of course, a much greater share of humanity lived in the countryside and a much smaller share lived in cities, and that's changed. Now, the obvious difference between country life and urban life has to do with population density. So potentially, you actually know and speak to a lot more people if you live in a city than if you live in the countryside. And actually, on a daily basis probably, many people who live in cities speak to more people than other people who live in the countryside, right? Because there's a greater amount of interaction. Now, the difference is that you do not know these people necessarily that you speak to. It's just the baker one want shop or something. So one of the differences, and sociologists have often pointed it out, is a greater level of anonymity in cities. Not necessarily less interaction, but a different kind of interaction. Now, there was a German sociologist at the beginning of the 20th century by the name of Georg Simmel who said that this created an intellectuality and a blasé attitude among urbanites compared to country folk. I don't necessarily agree with this diagnosis either then or today, in one part because today some urban studies scholars such as Neil Brenner in the United States and someone called Christian Schmidt here in Switzerland speak of planetary urbanization, by which they mean that areas with relatively little population density on paper actually become more urban in terms of social profile. An early example of this is if you think of the city of Los Angeles, Mm. which isn't like New York in terms of density or in terms of how people traditionally thought about cities. It's actually very spread out, less dense. In terms of social life and kinds of interaction and the function that plays in a larger economy, it definitely is urban, right? And many places around the world increasingly become so. So actually, in some ways, the border between city life and country life, I think, in terms of social profile, is becoming blurred in many places.
0: This is Counterpoint and I'm Amanda Vanstone. I'm talking about cities and how they impact on our lives, not just infrastructure and stuff like that, the concept of a city as a whole. And guiding us in this discussion is Michael Gerbel, Professor of International History at the Graduate University in Geneva. There's been a history of cultural movements arguing that Cities are the centre of, this is me probably putting it at its worst, that cities are the centre of all evil and placing rural life on a higher level and pushing towards a return to that.
2: That's the positive part of the answer where I think the urban-rural divide matters very much. And we see it in today's politics. If you look at the American presidential election of 2016, population density is... I think one of the best electoral predictors for whether someone voted for Trump or for Hillary Clinton, better than race, gender, and even education. So if you look at the voting map, the electoral map of the United States, Mm -hmm. basically it gets blue where many people cluster, which is cities, right? So it matters very much in that sense. And you can see similar phenomena in many European countries. And actually this divide deepens, So the rural-urban divide in terms of voting patterns and in terms of politics, I think, is becoming more important in many Western countries. Mm. And so this contradicts a little bit what I just said earlier, right, in terms of certain rural areas becoming more urban in terms of lifestyle. This is more to do with politics, but also with political rhetoric, I think. When you listen to a lot of right-wing populist rhetoric, you hear a lot of anti-urban bias, anti-intellectual bias anti-cosmopolitan bias. you know, urbanites, they're cosmopolitan, they aren't really rooted in their country. They don't know the everyday hardship of country life. People outside of cities are more bound to their nation, to customs and to tradition and so forth. People in the city are unproductive, supposedly, and cliches like that, which actually are not new You see things like that also in left-wing totalitarian regimes. Think of the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia, for instance. So this anti-urban bias and a certain kind of populist rhetoric isn't exactly new, but I think it has become much more important in North America and Western Europe in the last decade or so, alongside a deepening rural-urban divide in how people vote. So in that sense, I think, you're right. There you can see an important difference between cities and countries.
0: We know that life is complicated, and you mentioned earlier some contradictions. There's another one in the sense that, anecdotally, I think people generally think of rural people as being more authentic, perhaps more upstanding, more forthright, you know, decent citizens, hard-working agrarians. And yet the concept of citizen very much depends on people coming together in a city, in a village square and being a part of a bigger thing than themselves. And that's a bit of a contradiction to me. I, I haven't yet figured out where my brain wants to go on that. Can you be helpful?
3: Yeah,
2: it's interesting you should say that. I agree. So the very word, the very term citizen, etymologically obviously comes from city, as does the term, the, the French and also English term bourgeois, right, which comes from bourgeois, mm-hmm. which is a fortified place. And so those two terms are very clearly bound to the image and idea of cities. And they then became transposed in the sense that nowadays, citizens means the members of a political community, normally a nation state. If you think of this in terms of conceptual history, then the members of that political community etymologically have more to do with cities than with the countryside, as you say. It's also true, as you said, that on the other hand, country folk typically are viewed as more authentic and bound to national traditions, food, dance, clothes, and so forth. Now, what I believe this contradiction embodies is that we all have Different ways of defining membership in a political or in the national community and one of the ways of defining this membership is political to say you are a member of the Australian nation if you have an Australian passport now this is a culturally poor or relatively neutral definition of what it means to be Australian right a sort of civic belonging Mm. which I think belongs more to this term citizen. Now, there's another way of defining what it means to be Australian, and this is the food you eat, the dances you dance, the accent you speak, the skin color you have, and things like that, which are more ethnic and cultural. And I think it is these areas of belonging, ethnic rather than civic belonging to a nation, where lots of ideas about the authentic nature of the countryside comes in.
0: Mm. Michael, you're obviously fascinated by cities and the impact that they've had and you know the notion of what was it three million people moving every week into urban areas is just stultifying to my brain, but obviously these cities in I think you call them urban lumps make a tremendous impact on our lives and they have a quite a dramatic impact on equality or inequality. so. Do you have any idea why the intellectual elites haven't focused on them in this way?
2: So maybe first of all on this last point, I think I'm making a particular point about historians rather than you know, the social sciences and intellectuals at large. I think there's urban studies in a lot of universities. It's just that they aren't particularly historically inclined. And historians often write and speak about cities but in a very implicit fashion. So they speak about people who lived in cities, also in part because historically urbanites produced a greater density of written historical record, which historians today can use in archives, than people in the countryside did. So actually historians focus on urbanites to a disproportionate extent. It's just that they don't make this very explicit by thinking about cities as a form of social life.
0: Studying urbanites is different from the concept of which I'm thinking, which is Exactly, studying the interaction that the urbanisation has with the rest of the country exactly. and how that impacts on everyone.
2: So they study people who happen to live in cities. <laughs> not,
0: yes, yes. Not, not,
2: exactly, not you know, the role of cities and their relationship with phenomena such as globalisation. So I speak of urban lumps because, as we know from the 1990s literature about globalisation, long distance connections are very much concentrated, clustered in cities. There was a time when people thought that the arrival of the internet would make cities obsolete because you can sit in the mountains and work just as well as you could in cities. So people thought that in the 1990s. Now, the opposite has happened. If you think of the most computerized parts of the economy, places like Silicon Valley and so forth, which aren't exactly urban, but do depend on population density and on clustering, the opposite has happened, right? <laughs> so both in the past and today, long distance connection, but also financial power and so forth is very much correlated with population density and thus with urban life, This is what used to be called the command and control centres of the global economy, places like London, New York, or formerly Tokyo. And these are big cities which are extremely important for globalisation, for long-distance connections, and for the global capitalist economy. And nothing indicates that the internet or something like that would ever change that.
0: Look, Michael, I have to say, this has been one of the more interesting conversations that I've had the opportunity to have in hosting this programme. And I thank you very much for joining us from Geneva. No, all thank you. Cities full of office buildings might soon have those buildings full of robots doing jobs white collar workers from office boys to professionals might now do.
1: If you turn into something
3: like a robot
0: Globalisation's with us in a big way. We all know about it. We think of trade, money flying around the world, people flying around the world, international companies. We need to think about it a bit more. Maybe robots and globalisation and artificial intelligence. It's gonna be big. Maybe we're gonna have a globotic upheaval. To talk to us about that, Professor Richard Baldwin who's professor at the Graduate Institute in Geneva, joins us now. Professor Baldwin, welcome to CounterPoint.
1: Great to be here. Let's talk about a globotic upheaval. What's happening out there? Well, so globotics, you know, I kind of made up that word to... Tell people that it's not just globalization or automation, but both. It's the robots and the globalization smashed together, and much bigger impact. Much bigger impact and happening at the same time. We had automation, like from the 70s, of computerization, and it wasn't really until the 90s that it going the last time. This time they're coming at the same time. So you're getting all sorts of software robots that are taking over human tasks, at the same time as you're getting freelancers sitting abroad doing work, and both of these are affecting the service sector, not the manufacturing sector. And I think that's the big key. But that's where a lot of jobs are, the vast majority of jobs are. (laughs) Exactly. I mean, especially after the last wave of globalisation, there aren't that many factory jobs left. So 80 90% of the workforce in a rich country like Australia will be in services. And up till now, their jobs were protected from globalisation because, you know, we said services are non-traded and digital technology is changing that reality. And the same thing, we said, well, their job can't be automated like a car factory job can be automated because computers couldn't really think. Ah, But now they can. mm. Or at least they can see, they can read, they can generate written outcome, visual outcome. And so a bunch of jobs that were shielded from both automation and globalization are now exposed because of digital technology. Yeah. And is it right to say that the AI aspect can
0: come... And it might not wipe out the complete job, but it so changes the job that the person who now has the job might be overqualified for it. So it changes the nature of their employment. That might come in a
1: big way or it might just provide one small change at a time to a job. You're dead on. I think you're exactly right. So, first of all, you know, it's like think tasks, not jobs. The analogy I like to use is like tractors and farmers. Yeah. So, you know, a tractor changed the job of farming but did not eliminate farmers. Right. And same way, AI is not going to eliminate many jobs, but it will change every job. And a lot of it will be so gradual that we don't really see it. So, it's not like China comes, the factory gets shut down, everybody's out on the dole. It's one job, one task at a time, maybe not rehiring people. And I like very much the way you put it, is a lot of this will end up with downgraded unemployment. My example I often use is journalists in London. So 10, 15 years ago, they all had good jobs with newspapers, permanent contracts, career prospects, pensions in the banks. And now most of them are freelancers which means their income is more precarious, it's uncertain. You know, you you can't get a loan based on a whole bunch of gigs that they do. And a lot of them have had a downgrade in income as well. So I like to call that downgrade unemployment. You were pointing out, you know, maybe you would leave, but then again, you know, maybe you're going to have to leave and go into this gig economy. But since also these people tend to be in cities... It's not as dramatic or as obvious when they shut down a factory in Wisconsin and then, you know, everybody over the age of 50 is essentially unemployed for the rest of their life because there's no jobs in this small city in Wisconsin. Now, in the past, I mean, you mentioned the factory closure
0: in Wisconsin and we saw a fairly dramatic rundown in secondary manufacturing in terms of robots coming in. And, gee, what are we talking about secondary manufacturing? There was robotic surgery. So we've seen all that. But given this is going to happen in a big way, spatially, but in a different way, not in your face. Do we need to rethink how change is coming? Do you get a sense that people who have an opportunity to shape this understand how it's going to happen?
1: Right. So I wrote the book because I think people are not understanding how this one's different. I feel like I'm going down to the village square and ringing the bell, you know, wake Mm. up. This is coming faster than you think and in ways few expect. Because much of the discussion is using the analogy of what happened over the last two decades with factory closures, farms changing, that sort of stuff, to think about what's going forward. But it's really a very, very different thing. I like to use the analogy of the iPhone infiltration. So if you think about how iPhones came into our lives, it was gradual. The first few well, years do you think? Well, no, didn't do very much to begin with. But every year, every couple of years, they add on a bunch more things and now just pervades our life. But, well, that's true. Yes. In the beginning, nobody really knew it was going to change the way we live, and people didn't make a decision to do it. And I think in the same way, this outsourcing and automation is creeping up on us, and people haven't really understood it's a thing. And I think at some point, they may understand that this is a problem, and it's different. It's not China, and it's not robots. It's telemigration, and it's software automation. And that looks very, very different. So I don't think people are ready for it. And I think the way the government and stuff have to react, they have to wake up and worry about how fast it's coming. Sure. But you do offer some hope, because you rightly point out that there are some things
0: that can't easily be artificially learned. And they relate, fortunately, to humanity, how to manage people, how to get the best out of people. I understood when I read what you'd said there, Because when I was a minister, I never thought when someone said, oh, can I work at home for two weeks, you know, because their kids on holidays or something, I used to think, oh, that can't work. We'd try and let people do things, but the reason it couldn't work was not because I didn't trust them, although children are a distraction, it's because they're not in and part of the team. And if there's a team that's functioning, there's a degree to which some aspects of a team cannot be done by video conference.
1: Do you agree with that? Absolutely. What I've really liked is some aspects of. And I think digital technology is changing the range of which can be done. So in the U.S., where domestic tamale is super big, the companies are moving towards project-based organization. They're using collaborative software to coordinate teams mm. of people. So they're making it easier to slot in remote Americans into an American service yes. process. Now, once they figure that out, they'll realize they'll be able to get Mexicans or Uruguayans for a tenth of the price. So I think that is, you know, that's changing. The technology is allowing remote workers to be less remote. But there will always be parts of the job where you actually have to be there. One of my favorite examples is Snapchat, which had a couple dozen workers in a building creating the app Mm -hmm. when it went public for billions of dollars. And those people actually were multidisciplinary team, but they were physically together and they were using artificial intelligence and they were using freelancers to spin up and make themselves more powerful. But the actual creative process, innovation, all that sort of stuff, some people still had to be there. And so that's what I think, you know, if you want to think about on a personal level, make sure you're doing something that can't be done remotely. And that's really the kind of more human things and trust and teams and cultural knowledge and things like that. But an increasing range of things will be done and are being done remotely. You're on RN. This is CounterPoint.
0: I'm Amanda Vanstone and I'm talking to Richard Baldwin. And we're talking about, you know, what happens when AI hits together with robotics and globalisation whack all at once? Look, this next question might not be in your field of interest, but it's a spin-off from what you're talking about. Let's give it a
1: go, sounds great. (laughs)
0: Okay. (laughs) Well, where we have technology that can do things remotely, I worry that we'll get to the point where humans lack the capacity to deal with problems without
1: that technology. They don't know how to be human and use their knowledge without equipment. So it's not part of my research, but it's something I feel very much. I sort of tongue in cheek. I think maybe we ought to turn off the GPS one day a week, <gasps> just just to let people. Learn. I have no sense of direction. Well, <laughs> you know, learning how to read a map—that was a real skill—and then the, oh, the I can young, do that. younger generation don't know how to read a map. They never read a map Can you before. buy maps anymore <laughs> yeah. at service stations? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. You know, like when I tour around a new city, I go to the tourist office and they frequently have a map. Some maps had all the streets and some of them only the main ones. It was really an art to figure out how Not to sure. go around. And so I do think that we're becoming a little bit too dependent on some of the technology, but I don't know what to do about that. Ah, uh, but and there's hope. There's th- hope. Do you know, as I know
0: people who listen to their GPS and say, that's crazy, that's a stupid way to go, and they go another way. Do you know people who have done that? Oh, yes, yes. (laughs) Right. So maybe that I've answered my own question, that humans do learn to do without the technology or at least to bypass it when it's wrong.
1: Yes, yes. And as it's getting better and better, but it'll be more and more of a trap. But I have hope and optimism in humans. Okay. You can take the same thing and go back to the 1800s, 1900s, and there was a whole set of technology, you know, most people don't know how to split wood and heat a house with wood and all that sort of stuff. But I do worry that this excessive reliance on electricity and smartphones and GPS, that that is creating some vulnerabilities that might come back to bite us. Okay.
0: Now, Cambridge, Harvard, Yale, they
1: all get together and say,
0: Professor Baldwin, we're going to pay you whatever you want. We want you to tell us how we have to change what we teach.
1: So I have a little bit in the book. This isn't a self-help book, but I have a little bit that just streams straight on to my analysis of the future of work. And what I think we need to focus on is not what AI can do and what robots can do and how telemigrants are going to do this and that, but what they can't do. So we focus on the most human tasks AI, as it turns out, can't do. Empathy, creativity, innovation, managing people, motivating people, being curious, applying ethics. All those things are things that the machine learning can't do, at least in the foreseeable future. So we have to teach our kids that because whatever jobs are left, we'll need more of that. I like to tell a story of how the mechanization revolution that came with the industrial revolution it gave big muscles to people who work their hands and then the second one with the computerization it made substitutes for people who work with their hands but better tools for people who work with their heads and so it was good for them and in this sense this stuff is a substitute for people who work with their heads cuz machine learning is Database pattern recognition, mm-hmm. which sounds a lot like experience based pattern recognition, which is what lawyers and doctors and engineers mm-hmm. and architects do. So I think it's creating more substitutes for a type of judgment and cognition. And what it can't substitute is for the heart. So I think people who have a human feeling will now be empowered with greater brain power through this machine learning stuff. And therefore, we need to teach people in school, not Harvard, but way before that to work together in teams, to be compassionate, to be creative. And those are the things that cannot be foreseeable future, automated or outsourced. So I would See, say well, more this that. this is good news. You should be ringing the bell in the square saying,
0: good news. Yeah. You know, humanity is needed. All these bright sparks that are just, I don't mean to diminish it, but just intellectually bright. I have intellectual intelligence and no emotional intelligence.
1: Are going to stop running the world. Absolutely. I sing a little bit of this, you know, fire and brimstone, the world's going to topside. But deep down, this is taking the robotic stuff out of jobs. And what's left is the human things and also local. So I think the future of work will be jobs where we need more human skills and we actually have to be together. Otherwise, it'll be done by somebody else. Now, we don't know the names of those jobs. Or shape yet. But, but what's left over will be there. Professor Baldwin, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure, thanks for having me.
0: Robots might take white collar jobs, but they're also not too discriminating as to their surroundings. So down into the sewers of India they go and they just might save hundreds, even thousands of lives. Well, we've done some poo stories this year. Human waste, it's a big problem internationally. And we're doing another one now. We're going to talk to Pooja Changoiwala. She's an award-winning independent journalist and author based in Mumbai. She writes about lots of things, gender, crime, human rights, social justice, and development in India, and are there developments. There are people who have had as their jobs and still do, getting down into the sewers and cleaning them out. Not a job you or I want and not a job anyone's meant to have, according to Indian law. But there may now be some hope on the horizon. So joining us now from Mumbai is Puja Changwewala. Puja, welcome to Counterpoint.
4: Thank you. Thank you for having me, Amanda. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Well, a manual scavenger. It doesn't sound nice, but it's a lot nicer than the work the people do, isn't it? Yeah. These people go down and they plumb the manholes of Mumbai, as you say. Some of them go waist deep into silt and sludge, searching for sewer-clogging things. But this has been technically illegal in India for a long time. What's the story there? So basically, the Indian government defines a manual scavenger
4: as somebody who physically carries human excreta. Now, the practice has been outlawed for 26 years and technically, on paper, it is illegal to hire somebody as a manual scavenger, but the practice still exists. So although it's punishable with imprisonment for one year, if you hire somebody as a manual scavenger, not one person has been held accountable for the crime so far, and according to the government's own 2011 census, there are about 182,000 Indians who still work as manual scavengers while the human rights group they pegged the number at 770,000 and deaths are very common in the profession because these people go down manholes and sewers without the requisite safety gear, they don't have helmets, masks or gloves and there are toxic gases down these manholes so deaths often take place because of drowning in turgid waters because of suffocation, because of oxygen depletion and if you consider the official figures, between January you 2017, and September 2018, one manual scavenger died at work every five days, which is quite harrowing, actually. And according to human rights groups, there have been 1,790 deaths between 2010 and 2019.
0: For something that's outlawed, puja, to have yeah. nearly 1,800 people die over a 2010 to 2019 period, it's quite mm. a lot of people to die doing something... They're employed to do, but which it is illegal to employ someone to do. Is there any movement in India, decent, strong movement, to get the government to act on this illegality?
4: There are a lot of rights-based groups which are working to eradicate the practice. Even the Supreme Court of India, which is like the apex court, it came down very heavily on the Indian government uh, very recently in September, and it said, No other country in the world sends people to gas chambers to die. That was a very strong statement that the APEX board made recently. And there have been measures to move to technology. So the government called for a technology challenge in 2018, inviting innovators to devise technology-based alternatives to this noxious work. And solutions like robots, sewer robots have emerged, but technology is expensive. It has had a limited reach. And it doesn't address the core issue of the problem that, is, that lies ingrained in India's caste system. It's a 2,000, 3,000-year-old caste system which still dictates, in some cases, aspects of the Hindu social, religious, and professional life. It treats Dalits as the lowest echelon of the Indian society and pushes them. Into this denigrating work. So, there has to be, along with technology, in order to eradicate the practice, a lot more needs to be done. We need to have a sustainable social change. So, although measures are being taken by the government, they're not holistic. You know, I mean, discrimination still exists. The Indian constitution outlawed discussed this caste discrimination in 1949. But even today, like, for example, if the work is done mainly by Dalits, Historically, they've been known as the untouchables, the outcasts. So even the state does not care about them, really. And plus, who else will do the work?
0: Laws alone are not effective. You really do need the community as a whole to find a particular activity unacceptable and to join in with law enforcement to stopping that activity as best they can. What you're telling me is that in India, the caste system still hangs around, and the Dalits Mm. are still regarded as the lowest of low, so they Mm. haven't necessarily got the community on their side. Exactly.
4: Another reason why the practice exists is because there are a lot of dry latrines in India. According to the 2011 census, there are 2.5 million dry latrines where human excreta has to be cleaned out physically from open drains. There are two laws, one in 93, one in 2013. 2013 Act says that it's the local authorities' responsibility to identify these dry latrines, demolish them, and make them into sanitary latrines. But this hasn't been done, although our Prime Minister, and everybody has gone on record saying that India is doing well most recently in the US. But the problem scenario on the ground is really different. There are people who are still doing this work, there are people who are still dying, and nobody is being held accountable.
0: Well, I understand that, but let's look at the brighter side of this, and that is that there are some people looking at technology to try and get machines that can do this work and I understand in March this year the Delhi government deployed 200 mechanised systems that were given to skilled manual scavengers in an attempt to end that practice. And I have to say, having read about two of Mm. the types of robots, if you like, that have been developed, I need to ask you whether it's the Indian community that developed Mm. these robots or in particular if they named them. Because one is called Bandicoot and the other is right. called Sewer Croc. What can you tell right. us about these new robots?
4: So Bandicoot is basically a 110-pound sewer robot. It has a robotic arm which plucks out solid face and collects it in a bucket. It has an attachable water jet. It clears which blockages. and There's a camera which enables operators to see footage of the manual from inside. It is meant to replace manual scavengers. It finishes work, which usually takes two hours and at least three men in about 20 minutes.
0: That's but, pretty good.
4: Uh, yeah, that's pretty nice, but it's quite expensive.
0: And what about the one called Sewer Croc?
4: Sewer Croc is another such tech-based solution. The machine goes down sewer lines. It has spring-loaded Teflon wheels and uses its cutting blades and high-velocity water jet to cut through the debris. But... These solutions are expensive and they've had a limited need so far. For example, Candy food has been deployed only in seven states at the moment. There are only 25 machines at the moment. But I think these solutions are really important because they are aimed at saving lives. So I don't think they should be discarded. But along with that, we need to have many more things. Like I mentioned, we need sustainable social change and we require a rehabilitation compensation plan should robots replace these men. For example, Bandicoot is doing that already in a way. Bandicoot is training existing manual scavengers to operate these machines. So from scavengers, they're going to machine operators, which is a good transition, but I don't know how many men will be absorbed into the new system. So there's this threat of unemployment and denial of work.
0: Yeah. So that leads to the broader question, which is really Mm -hmm. unrelated to the sewage issue. And that is, can India reshape itself to ensure that Dalits have an opportunity for decent work, whatever that work?
4: I think it's a slow process, but it's happening. I mean, there have been a lot of rights-based movements that Dalits have come out seeking a better life, and they have had success. But then in some remote areas, there's are still suffering. I mean, for example, I was speaking to a couple of them, and they told me that, okay, we don't want to be manual scavengers. And we, we thought of setting up a grocery shop, but nobody came to the shop because you know we are considered to be really low in the class system, and nobody wants to buy stuff from us. We are expected to pick up pieces and dirt and things like that. Mm. So mm. The, their morale, especially in the rural areas, especially in the interiors, is so low. Do not even think of alternatives other than this denigrating profession.
0: final question. What yes. would you like to see happen in the next five years in India? In terms of manual scavenging? Yeah. Actually, I'm
4: quite positive. I mean, if technology really comes in, I think we can eradicate this profession, but not in the next five years. I think it'll take another 10, 15 years, but I do see it going away because. In every aspect, technology is already belated in some cases because, for example, in Mumbai, we've had 265 deaths in the past few years and not one of these families have been compensated. These men have died either on the job or due to illnesses contracted because of the job. So as long as the social injustice persists, it is difficult to get rid of the profession. But I do see it fading away slowly. Yeah, but I do see hope.
0: Yeah. Well, Pooja Changorala joining us from Mumbai. Thanks very much. Thank you, Amanda. Robots are big news. Maybe we'll send them into space. When you look at the moon, I don't know about you, but I can't help but think of nursery rhymes, the man in the moon, look up with wonder. I saw the capsule that the first American went into space in and got goosebumps. The concept of mankind getting out into space is enchanting, indeed inspiring. The suggestion is that now we are ready to pick up our game. We've got a space agency and we want to get in there and start working on it. Should we land a moon mission? Should we use robots? I don't know. But look, we should get into space. I don't know much about it, so let's talk to Andrew Dempster. He's the Director of the Australian Centre for Space Engineering Research. He's Professor at the School of Electrical Engineering and Telecommunications at the University of New South Wales. Andrew Dempster, welcome to Counterpoint. Thanks for having me. Well, Australia can pick up its game and land a moon mission. Do you mean by that a man on the moon?
3: We're not really talking about people on the moon. Oh, good. Your point there where you were talking about nursery rhymes and so on, the moon is a place that many cultures on Earth have a a lot of relation to because we've looked at going to places like asteroids and so on and people are not that connected to asteroids, but the moon, every culture has a relationship to the moon. They may not have seen snow, they may not have seen the sea, but everyone's seen the moon.
0: Mm, That's true and I suppose from your childhood it sticks in your imagination. Why do you think we should be out there?
3: Well, that comment about asteroids, I think it might have just been reflecting the way people were thinking at that time. The idea of finding and using water in space, the first companies that were set up to do that were actually looking at asteroids. And that emphasis has really changed now. We're sort of starting to look back at the moon. Mm -hmm. We've been looking at how you might use space resources for quite a long time. We've been looking at it for six years in my group. And over that time, it's really emerged that water is the lowest hanging fruit. It's useful for all sorts of things. You can use it for any sort of chemical reaction. You can use it to drink if there are people there, but we're not talking about that. But most simple of all, you simply break the water into hydrogen and oxygen and you can use it for rocket fuel. And that would then allow you to use the moon, for instance, as a stepping stone to Mars. Ah. Or you could use that rocket fuel in space more cheaply. There's a company called Astrobotic, and what they're talking about is we'll take something to the moon for you for $1.2 million a kilogram. So if you can produce something on the surface of the moon and use it on the surface of the moon for Mm -hmm. less than $1.2 million a kilogram, you're ahead. So there's a few good business cases you can make about how you can use some of these things in space, and we're starting with water.
0: Okay. Now, the CSIRO have identified a number of, I think what they call nation-building flagship space missions. Four of those are tied up to the moon. Can you tell us something about all of them? What do you think are the most exciting ones and feasible?
3: Well, it's an interesting question because we actually discussed this last week in Brisbane. We had two days where we were pitching these ideas. They cut those nine down to four... And two of those were to the moon and two of them were sort of Earth observation type missions. Mm. So the Earth observation missions were observing water problems, particularly in Australia. So soil moisture, flooding, where the Murray-Darling Basin water is going, that sort of thing. Another one was about space weather, which is actually something that's very useful to know about for radio transmission Satellite navigation, these sorts of things. Space weather affects us in ways that are not obvious but can be important. So those two were Earth-orbiting missions. Uh And the mission that I was pitching was an orbiter for the moon and a lander that would go down and sample for water. The other moon mission was a data relay. Because there are a lot of people looking at going to the moon, there's a lot of data that needs to come back. And they were talking about providing a channel for that information coming back from the moon.
0: Mm. People talk about the shadowy craters being the most likely place to find water. Is that, to put it in horrifically ignorant language, because they're big ditches where the water might
3: collect? Yeah, there's probably some quite complicated sort of space geology that you can Mm. use to explain, but there's this idea of gardening. So micrometeorites Mm. hit the moon and it throws up debris and that debris gradually migrates and once it gets to the poles and it falls into these craters that are in permanent shadow the water molecules form ice and a recent paper only 2 weeks ago was showing that the shape of the craters at the poles is different to the shape of the craters at the equator they're shallower because they believe those craters have been filled up with this water which is then frozen there are various estimates and this is part of what we have to find out and what we're talking about with my mission is we've got estimates of between 100 million tonnes and 2,000 million tonnes of water on the moon. So there seems to be plenty of it there.
0: You're on RN. This is Counterpoint and I'm Amanda Vanstone. I'm talking with Andrew Dempster, who's Professor in the School of Electrical Engineering and Telecommunications at the University of New South Wales and the Australian Centre for Space Engineering Research, he's the director thereof, about what we're doing in space. I understand that if other countries are out there, we need to be there if only for defence purposes, but maybe for other, more altruistic purposes as well. But all other things being equal, put that aside, what would you say to the environmentalists who'd say, look, we haven't done such a great job with planet Earth. What in God's name are we out there looking to mess up any other part of the galaxy?
3: Well, there are a number of arguments you can make for that. When you're extracting water from the moon, you're not destroying any habitats or whatever. And if you're avoiding launching things from Earth and creating them in space instead, then, again, you're reducing that impact from launching and so on. I think there are various arguments you can make. In fact, I have a PhD student working on exactly this problem, the environmental impacts of Mm. space exploration, not a particularly well-researched area. So she's really creating some impact with her work.
0: Mm. Because if countries like China and the United States and us and everyone else are sending stuff up all the time heavens knows how many satellites are roaming around up there, but more than that, in the end, it's going to accumulate, just like the plastic we chuck in oceans. In the end, you can't put things somewhere without it having an impact.
3: This is a serious issue. At the moment, I think there's something like 20,000 objects the size of a baseball or bigger in orbit, and some of those orbits take a very long time to re-enter. So... My group, we launched two satellites in 2017. They were deployed out of the back of the space station. They did their work for a year and a half, but because the space station's are at a relatively low altitude, those satellites have already deorbited by the end of 2018. But the higher you get up, the longer those lifetimes are of all those spacecraft, and particularly the big communication satellites that are out at geostationary orbit. Effectively, in our terms, they're there forever. So yes, space pollution or space situational awareness is a serious problem and when people are talking about sending up constellations of thousands of satellites to provide global internet, it's a nice idea but then where do those satellites end up? They really do have to have a deorbit strategy.
0: You think so? I mean, junk is junk whether it's in space or in the ocean or in our rivers. Can you tell me about what international collaboration there is? to use space safely and effectively?
3: Well, space is actually one of the great success stories, really, for international collaboration. The United Nations has a number of committees and so on, and Australia has always played a significant role in these committees. This area that we're talking about, saying extracting water from the moon, part of the problem with the treaties, so there's the Outer Space Treaty and the Moon Agreement, neither of these things is particularly forthright. The lawyers have written these things. As an engineer, I look at these documents and say, I can read that clause and unambiguously say, you cannot extract that water for your use. And you can read the same clause and unambiguously read it as, yes, you can. And that's true of both the treaty and the agreement. So Australia is taking a leadership role in dealing with that. And if you look at the space station, for instance, even through times when there's been a lot of conflict and tension between the US Mm -hmm. and Russia, The way that they have collaborated in the space station has always been very good. The Americans who go to the space station must all learn Russian. There's all sorts of ways that space has been a good example of how international relations can work.
0: Well, that's a good thing. It might also not only be a good example of how it can work, it might be the sort of thing that forces people to collaborate in a way that they otherwise wouldn't. On this Earth, it gives them, if you like, they step outside the ring and can form relationships outside the boxing ring of global Earth that they wouldn't necessarily form.
3: It is a very internationalist idea. Obviously, with the 50th anniversary of the Apollo landing, this has been in the news quite a lot. And I heard an interview with Michael Collins and they did a big tour. The astronauts did a big tour after the moon landing and they went all around the world, all different countries, and didn't matter where they went, people didn't say, oh, congratulations, well done, America, for landing on the moon. Everyone was saying, we landed on the moon. Mm-hmm. It was always seen a, as a An a, a achievement for mankind, thing. yes.
0: Yeah. Isn't that fascinating? Uh, uh, Do you know, I think, Andrew Dempster, you've hit on the point at which we should finish. It was such a unifying thing, and that's a really good anecdote, if you like, because I remember that, mm. and people will remember saying, we did it, we did it. It's a unifying thing. Who would have thought that space exploration could achieve that? Andrew Dempster from the University of New South Wales School of Electrical Engineering and Telecommunications, professor thereof. Thanks very much for joining us on Counterpoint. Thank you. No, oh, here's the soapbox, and I tell you, the stupid rubbish people rattle on about their holidays. The worst is those who say they spend a week or two in a Tuscan villa or a week somewhere to live like the locals. Yeah, sure, pull the other one. You look different, you speak differently, because you are different. You are a voyeur when you're a traveller. You do not become someone else nor understand their background in any meaningful way. You're just a rich Westerner who comes back and bores your friends with little tidbits about how they, meaning other than you, have morning coffee or go to the market or whatever. Travel can be a luxury, a shampoo for your brain. It does not make you smarter. Please only talk about your travels when someone, after you've mentioned them, Absolutely implores you to tell more. Otherwise, that little silence is your friends' not knowing how to say, "Please shut up
1: a marvelous night for a moon dance with the
0: Well, that's the program for this week. As you know, if you've got some feedback, just go to the ABC site, go to RN. Follow the program prompts to counterpoint and give us your feedback. Thanks very much to the paediatrician who wrote in pointing out that our comments on education were quite helpful. He's trained a lot of doctors and among them, a guy who was a motor mechanic who turned out to be a great doctor. He rightly points out that your TER has got very little to do with whether you'll be a decent doctor. Anyway, until next week, this is Amanda Vanstone saying, Ciao, ciao.